I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. After a nine-year retirement, four kids, and the craziest road back to the top of the platform, this week, I will finally be competing at the Olympic trials for diving, trying to punch my ticket to a fourth Olympic Games in Tokyo. You can check out all the action this week on the Olympic Channel and NBC. So it just seemed fitting this week to share this really cool interview I did recently with former Special Forces Green Beret, Fran Rachopi. He is the host of the Jedberg Podcast. The Jedberg Podcast talks with CEOs, athletes, doctors, basically the people who know how to navigate through life at an elite level. But I don't want to say too much because Fran does an incredible job introducing his show and everything that we discuss in the episode. If you're enjoying the Pursuit of Gold podcast, please be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and give us a five-star rating and review. And if you've been loving this show, make sure you're sharing your favorite episodes with your friends because friends share awesome stuff with friends. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. This is the Jed Bird Podcast. I'm the host, Fran Rachopi. Each episode, I speak with transformative leaders, visionaries, drivers of change, and those dedicated to winning, no matter the challenge. The Jedberg Podcast is founded in the lineage of the special operations Jedberg teams of the past and is sponsored by Talent War Group, an executive search and talent advisory. Visit talentwargroup.com for more. A percentage of all proceeds is dedicated to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Faith and determination separate the good from the great. Laura Wilkinson won the Olympic gold on a broken foot and is currently training for her fourth Olympic Games. Laura joined me on the Jedberg podcast to define fear and the inaction that can come from allowing our emotions to control our decisions. She showed me that longevity and sustained success is an attitude and a mentality that must be earned every day. And she made me realize that Olympic athletes are just like the rest of us. They just do the basics and fundamentals without compromise and without excuse. Laura is also the winner of the 2004 World Cup and the 2005 World Championships. She is the first woman in history to win all three world titles in platform diving. Laura is also the host of the Pursuit of Gold podcast, where she speaks with elite and professional athletes about purpose beyond performance. Laura, welcome to the Jedberg podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm super excited. It's truly an honor to speak with you today. And I'm so humbled that you would take the time out of your busy training schedule, your kids, your career, and join us here to talk about your lessons on leadership, elite talent management, and really your never ending drive to win. Well, this is stuff right up my alley. I'm, I'm stoked to talk about it. <laughs> I'm so captivated by Olympic athletes. So many of us, you know, we watch for entertainment and we appreciate the competition. And there's a camaraderie behind the games. There's this need for the competitors to perform at their maximum capacity to reach that medal platform. But we as spectators, we often forget the amount of work, the blood, the sweat, the tears that was put in by these athletes to reach that moment. And so we tend to think of the athletes as superhuman, almost that they're given this gift of physical and mental power that allows them to compete at this high level. But when in reality, they're normal people like the rest of us. 
And we spoke on the phone last week and I was like, oh my God, she's going through the same struggles I am. She has her kids. She's trying to work. She's trying to train. She's recording podcasts from her closet. I mean, these are like the same things that I'm dealing with every day. I mean, don't get me wrong. I listen to other athletes who talk about, oh, I have 1.5 to two times the lung capacity of the normal person, or I'm six inches taller, or I'm like literally three times the size of everyone else. And sure, they have those competitive advantages, but they still have to put out the hard work. They have to leverage those into those genes to be competitive. And so I think about Olympic athletes and by no way would I, can I, or would I ever compare us who came out of special operations to what you and your peers have achieved. But there is this tendency also with special operations where people will come and they'll say, oh, you're special. You have something that no one else has. But the reality is that there is no gift. There is an opportunity. And that opportunity is presented to a lot of folks. But we're just like everybody else mentally and physically. And the difference is that there's a focus on the fundamentals, the basics of our craft. And those core tasks have been perfected in order to be successful. And that's been done every day over time without any compromise until you're mentally and physically exhausted. There's the blood, the sweat, the tears are covering the ground or the pool, you know, or the diving platform in your case. And so as I learned about your story in the research for this conversation, I came across a quote from you and it's that fate and determination separate the good from the great. And it really gave me goosebumps because it is that simple, that fate and determination are what give you that advantage and help you to reach that elite level. And can you show up every day, focus on the basics, perfect them and execute when the moment calls for it. And you've done that for 28 years. And so I'm so excited to talk to you. And I know that was a long open, but I just wanted to frame it in that sense. Well, thanks. And I, yeah, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head right there. It just, I mean, yeah, some people are physically more gifted. Some people aren't. I really don't feel like I am in any way. I have like the wrong body type. I'm not the best at any of the particular things, but it's that day in, day out consistency, being willing to put in all the time and like the boring stuff that maybe not so glamorous or not so exciting, but you're willing to do that every single day you know, it eventually pays off in the end. But a lot of people, you know, we want that instant gratification. And so it's really hard to have such long-term goals and be so consistent for so long to see them through. There's a patience behind it that you have to, you have to respect that patience, I think. Definitely. So we're going to talk about your success. We're going to talk about some of the failures, which I know you've learned a tremendous amount from. I want to talk about your drive, the resiliency to endure for so long at this elite level. But I want to start, and I think it's really important to begin with your high school team and this fact that you were cut from your high school team and actually told that you were, quote, a waste of space. I need to understand what happened here. Yeah. So I didn't grow up a diver. I, I grew up a gymnast. I wanted to be Mary Lou Retton with that perfect 10 vault and realized that I wasn't going to be. So I still had this dream of going to the Olympics. So I had tried a bunch of other sports and finally found my way into diving like the end of my freshman year of high school. So my sophomore year, I, I jumped onto the high school diving team, but our coach, not my club coach, my club coach, I'm still with now, but our high school coach did not like divers because we weren't swimmers and we were just annoying to him. And the reason he really didn't like me is because I showed up every day because I, I wouldn't leave and I wanted a place to train while I was there in the class. And so 
we butted heads a lot and my persistency <laughs> was not seen well in his eyes. And so, yeah, he eventually kicked me out. So, well, he actually, I got threatened. He would lower my grade if I didn't leave. And I was a really good student. So I went to the counselor and was like, what can I do? And he basically said, you should get in a study hall. So I, I lost a half a credit from school. My mom was furious. Yeah, not, not the best high school memories, but it was so cool because at that same time that he's telling me I'm no good and I'm worthless and I don't want you here and all these things. I had a club coach who was like, what are your dreams? You want to be an Olympian. All right, let's figure out a way to get you there. And I'd never had anybody believe in me like that. I don't even think I'd ever told anybody like my deepest, deepest darkest dreams, you know, so to, to know that even though this person over here was telling me I was worthless, this coach over here was saying, you can do anything that you want to. Let's just, let's figure out a way to do it. So it was kind of these like polar opposite things that I was getting. But I mean, that coach who kicked me off wasn't the first person who told me I was no good or I wouldn't be anything. Like that was kind of a series of things that I had, I'd had over the years. I'm just really glad I was a stubborn enough teenager to just not listen to anybody and to have my own dreams and follow them. And I think that's one of the greatest things is just because somebody tells you you can't doesn't mean it's true. Like people tell you horrible stuff all the time and it's usually their insecurity. And you've got to remember that somebody else's opinions are not facts. And that's really hard for us because you can get a thousand wonderful comments, but you get one negative one and what sticks with you? Yeah, the negative. But we have to remember that, that other people's opinions are not facts. It doesn't define us and it has really nothing to do with us. I'm really glad I had that mindset at a young age. because I think, I think it really could have broken me instead. And that becomes your call to action. Exactly. So the next year you go off and you win your first U.S. national title. You make the U.S. national team. You earn a bronze medal at the World Cup. But before we get into those, because I do think it's, it's foundational, this experience here, and it set this tone. And it's also something that you, you, I think I share, the Jedburg podcast shares, the Talent War Group shares, which is that failure is part of success. And the concrete actions that you take from the moment you accept that you failed are what defines you as a leader and as an elite performer. And so you've spoken a lot about failure and how it defines you and then those actions that you have to take after. And so can you talk more about what you learn and how failure is a required path to success? Yeah, I was telling you earlier, I'm really good at failing. <laughs> I fail a whole lot. And you know, sometimes it's hard to see when you see other people who look like they just get it right off the bat and they're perfect all the time. And it drives you nuts because I'm, I'm over here going, how come I don't get it? How come I'm in gymnastics? I was the last one to get the kip. I was the last one to get the cast hands. I was the last one to be able to like figure everything out. I was always kind of slow on the uptick. But for some reason in diving, even if I wasn't the first one to get it, even if I was the last one to get it, there was this determination there. And I think maybe because I was always the last one, it made me more determined because I had to work harder at it. And I wanted to be where those other people were. And I think that it kind of gave me a little bit of a drive. And so when I st by the time I started diving, since I was 15, I was almost 16, I think the determination was kind of already set in there. You know what I mean? Like I have got to be able to work this hard to keep up or to pass people or to get to a certain point. And oh my goodness, I failed. <laughs> I failed so much. I mean, and in diving, it, everybody's like, oh, it's just water. You know, it doesn't hurt. But you go off 10 meter, you're hitting over 30 miles an hour. Like you, you feel like you're hitting concrete. And so it, it hurts. doesn't feel good. You knock the wind out of yourself, you get covered in bruises. I've seen some really bad accidents, but when you want something, like you're willing to risk the pain. At the very end of my gymnastics career, I remember being very fearful of a lot of things and I, and I wouldn't go. But by the time I got to diving, there was still fear, but I was okay with getting hurt. I was okay with the failure because I felt like I could really be someone here. I felt like 
okay, if I'm willing to go through that, I can get to this level. Like I kind of knew it was this stepping stone at this point, maybe because I had seen what it had done for me before where I should have been this really terrible gymnast because I was always the last one catching on. I actually became pretty good. And here I was starting really quickly into diving and progressing really fast. I think I saw a potential in that. And I had a coach saying, I think you can do these things that you dream of. So it was kind of like, all right, like whatever it takes. And every time I fail, I feel like it gives you the opportunity to learn. Like I've seen people who come in and they're amazing. It's like they win everything, they win everything. And, you know, they just kind of stay at this static place. They're really good for a long time, but they actually could probably be a lot better. But there's no desire to put in any extra effort or work because they're already winning. They're already good. But when you're not that great and you have to work really hard, like you go through those things where you may, you may do something amazing and you feel like you're at this peak and then you crash and burn because you're still trying to figure it out. But then that makes you even better than the last time. And so what I've seen is I take the hits, I mess up a lot, but it's because I'm making changes. It's because I'm pushing myself forward and I'm not afraid to look like a fool. You know, I mean, sometimes it's kind of eating a a bite of humble pie. Like I took a crash a couple of weeks ago and I was at this pool I hadn't been at in a long time. I was in front of this young group of kids and I felt so stupid because I just did a terrible takeoff and I ended up landing like flat on my face and I was so embarrassed. And this little girl goes, are you okay? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I think I just bruised my ego a little bit. This is eating my humble pie. And it's just a part of the process, you know? And and the next time was great. I think that's just something that people aren't always willing to go through is, is you might feel humiliated. You're going to have to go through that process. But if you want to get better, if you want to become more than you currently are, you have to go through that. And it doesn't feel good. And people don't like to do that, but it's necessary to continue to improve. Well, I think it's necessary too, because you have to learn those limits. And the only way that you're going to identify what those limits are is when you push past them and you fail. And so if you don't fall flat on your face, if you don't get hurt and your ego doesn't get bruised, then you don't know when you've actually truly reached it. And then the nice part about reaching that limit is you get to come back and say, okay, here's what I need to do to now push that limit out to the next level right? Or how do I need to adjust how I'm doing things to hit that level again, surpass it, and then push that benchmark further out and then get better. And so you now you have that kind of stair step. Yeah, exactly. That's really well said. The humbleness, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's one of our core characteristics of elite performance that we use here on the podcast and in Talent War Group. And we talk about the development of elite talent and there's a requirement to be humble and show humility. This is a very individual sport. I mean, you know, you have a team around you, you're partnered and paired with your coach and that's truly impactful, but it's you who has to execute. There's no one else to blame. Can you just speak for one second about maybe how do you accept that, right? When you have a bad dive, when you have to get out of the pool and face the little girl who's looking at you, you know, how do you then kind of say it was all me? Cuz the tendency a lot of times is to say, "Oh, well, the platform was wrong. The water wasn't right. Somebody looked at me wrong. There was a noise, you know, and so you pass blame, you shed blame. There's nowhere to go though. It's just you. Mm -hmm. And I see, and there's a lot of divers who make excuses every single time. And it's, you know, watching that in the pool, it's, it's really draining. I feel like that can be a cancer. Like people see somebody else do it that maybe is pretty good. And they think that that's okay. And then everybody starts doing that. And there's just a level of integrity that I think you have to have. And it's kind of an ownership. And if you're not willing to humble yourself enough to receive corrections too, and you're just making excuses and and placing blame on whether it's the equipment or something happened or whatever, you're never going to 
accept what you need to do to make a change to become better. So again, it's really interesting that I feel like a lot of the people that I see that are really good from the get-go, if something doesn't go quite right, those are the people I usually see go to the excuse game really, really quickly. And you have to be humble for so many reasons. You have to be able to accept criticism and to listen to your coach to make the changes because you have to be willing to trust them. And if you're just going to make excuses and blame something else, you're not going to, you're not going to hear that at all. And there's a level of integrity. Like at the end of the day, yeah, I may fail or I may do great, but it's, it's all on me, but I can either live in that and I can, I can be frustrated and angry and hold on to the bitterness and, and it just isn't going to take me anywhere good. Or I can say, okay, that stinks. I'm going to, I'm going to grieve that loss or that mistake or whatever it was. And now I'm going to look at it without emotion and say, okay, what did I do wrong and what can I fix and how can I become better? And I think that's, Really what I've learned over the time is, is, is just kind of how to, how to, you can have that moment, you can be upset about it, but then at some point you have to look back at what happened and say, how can I become better? How can I fix that? How can I move forward? So it's kind of constantly asking that question too. And you can't do that unless you have the humility to go back and look at what you did wrong in the first place. Yeah. And I like your points on integrity and ownership. Yeah. So it's, it's inward. So 2000 Sydney Olympics come along and you make history by becoming the first U.S. woman to win gold in the event since 1964. Truly a feat. And no one has done it since. I do want to, to mention that as well. But what some may not know is that not only do you climb from eighth to take gold during the event, but you do it with a broken foot. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what happened in the six months prior to the games that led to this broken foot? Yeah. So I had actually left a college scholarship to come home and train. We didn't have fancy Olympic waivers and all those kind of options back in my day. So I really felt like I had one year left of eligibility and I really wanted to focus on if this is my only shot at the Olympics, I felt like I needed to be all in and I needed to take advantage of the opportunity. So I had a long talk with my college coach who was actually very understanding and kind of freely released me to go home and train so that I could train full time without the distraction of school and College competitions, there's a lot. You have dual meets like every single week in the whole year. It's very draining. So I came home, things were going really well. And we had a meet in March out in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I was doing like a typical meet warm up where we do flips or somersaults onto a mat. And I was jumping off of a block of wood. And I came out of this one inward somersault a little early and I hit both the balls of my feet on the block of wood that I was jumping off of. You know, I mean, it hurt. We were icing it. I had to wait till the end of practice so that my coach could like, take me to the emergency room. And when we got there, the doctor told me it would hurt more and be more swollen if it was broken. So he didn't x-ray it. He gave me a pair of crutches and sent me on my way. And of course, we're like <laughs> three months out of trial. So we're thinking, okay, maybe it's not so bad. I was stuck there for like six more days and I was in excruciating pain. I mean, I was sleeping on the floor with my foot up on the bed, like just, I couldn't sleep. It was just excruciating. And we finally came home. So it was almost a week later. I came home and had my doctor x-ray it. And she came into the room crying and said, look, if I had seen this when it happened, I may have been able to reset it, but it's been a week. And I had like, you know how you have the bones in your hands and your feet are very similar. So the metatarsals on my feet, I broke the middle three and kind of like the knuckles you have in your, in your hands, you have that on your feet. And I, I broke like basically the heads and the knuckles off. And one of them had slid mm. underneath and in between two bones. And within just that week, had calcified underneath to the two bones. So it was like stuck there. It was stuck. It was in there. Yeah. So it was kind of like standing. I felt all this pressure when I stood on it. So it was like standing on a rock. It was my bone. And so she said to, to fix it, we'd have to re-break it, pin it all back together. Like there's no way you can be back in time for trials. Like it just, it won't heal that fast. But our only option was to cast it the way it was 
and hope <laughs> that maybe I could jump off of it when it was fully healed. And so that's what we did because it was like, well, if I'm going to have to have surgery anyway, we may as well try to cast it and see if that works. And so we did that. And I remember that first week, you go through all the emotions because it's like, I gave up my scholarship. I gave up all my friends, everything. I was living by myself here trying to do this thing. And it was almost like watching my dream slip like sand through my fingers. You know, it was a really kind of all those emotions that you go through. And it almost felt like there was some relief too, because like, well, if I don't make it, you know, now nobody can blame me that it wasn't good enough. I just had this accident, you know, like all the weird things that go through your head in those moments. But I remember thinking like, how many opportunities do we get? Like, I may not get another chance to try to go to the Olympics. Like this might be it. So I wanted to try. I was like, I don't care. I've dragged myself up there with one foot. Like I have to try. And I remember my coach came to my apartment to kind of give me some big old talking to and realized that I had already made up my mind. And he was like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, I have one rule. We only look forward and we don't look back. Like you can't go back and say, what if, what if, what if you can only go forward with a new plan. And he is really good at thinking outside the box where I'm getting better. but I was not good at that. I can execute a plan, but I'm not good at making up the plan. And I would watch other people doing the dives I was doing really well, or I, the ones that I had competed really well, I'd watch them. I'd put on my, you know, my headphones, listen to my favorite songs, watching that. Then anytime I would have my music playing, it was almost like the dives would come on instant replay in my brain. When I was supposed to be in the water, my coach, Kenny would hold my crutches and I would hop up on my one good foot all the way up to the 10 meter and kind of shimmy my way out to the end. And I would go through all the actions of my dives. And, you know, if there were people in, in the workout with me, he made me wait my turn in line. He would coach me from the side of the pool as I like pretended to do my dives. So it was, you know, 10 weeks of that. <laughs> it gets, gets a little old. And I started to think at some point, like, all right, how is pretending to dive going to get me to the Olympics? And there was, there was a real point in there where I wanted to give up. And I just, I thought it was stupid and I got frustrated. But I think we had been doing it for so long that all the kids on the team were really invested in what we were doing. And they were kind of in it with us. And I remember having this moment where I was just ready to kind of walk away. And all these kids were like, you got this. I believe in you. And it got so I would do like this pretend entry into the water and all the kids on the other side of the pool would start clapping going, I didn't see a drop of water. I'd give it a 10, you know? And I, I'm sure it looked nuts to anybody watching us, but it made so much of a difference for me. Like I felt like I was part of workout. I felt like I wasn't alone anymore. I felt like maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe this could work, you know? And it's amazing to me. And I think the thing that I really take away from that time was it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what station you have in life. You can really make a difference for somebody just by being there for them. It does. You don't have to have magic words. You don't have to do magic things, but just supporting people when they feel alone or when they need a little bit of a boost, it can make all the difference in the world. And I feel like those kids really turned it around for me. And it was 10 weeks and like three different casts later, I finally got to get back in the water. And it was only two and a half weeks before the trials. And that's not a lot of time at all. I mean, usually it takes you like a month to get your dives back off. And I had two and a half weeks to like be informed to try to make the Olympic team. And I'd never been to a trials before. And trials is sometimes in some ways more terrifying than the Olympics because all your dreams are on the line to make it to the Olympics. You got to make it there first. But man, I was so like excited after what we had been through just to be there and ready to compete that I, I felt like that kind of eliminated all the doubt and fear at that point. I ended up winning the trials by like 40 points. So in a lot of ways, that experience and just making the team was somewhat bigger than actually winning the Olympics. You know what I mean? It was, it was a crazy hard time, but so many lessons <laughs> learned on that road. Well, there's this boost of confidence, I think, that you, you take out of that and you almost think, okay, if I could get through this, 
right? And as you said, you, you go into trials and you win by 40 points. It's like, okay, I got a real chance here. And then almost the injury, it becomes, as you said, it becomes table stakes, right? There's no more. You can't look back because you don't, you don't get to go win trials, then go to the Olympics and then say, oh, well, I had this injury. It's like, no, 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 wait, we've proven now that we've overcome the injury. The injury is in the past. And now the only thing that matters are the results that are forward ahead of me. So you're in the Olympics, you're in fifth after the first five dives in the preliminary round. You're in eighth after the semifinals. You're walking up the ladder on each of these dives in a tennis shoe to protect your foot. You go in through the first two dives in the final are fairly decent, an eight and an 8.5, but others are scoring nines and, you, and you're seeing this at this point. And now you give yourself a pep talk. And actually there's, there's a story about how the batteries died in your CD player because we had CD players back then. We didn't get to listen to, to music on our phones, right? <laughs> so we actually had a physical CD. And you do realize, similar to what you said, and you, you have a, a nice quote here that I want to read. And you realize that it dawned on me that this wasn't just my dream. This was about so many more people who have this dream to never have this opportunity, who never have this opportunity. I had all these teammates who helped me when my foot was broken. They were so supportive of me. I knew it wasn't about me anymore. It became so much bigger. And then you channel that in these last two dives where you say that this pressure that you felt became a power. And so can you talk about the pep talk that you gave when now it's silent, there's no more music, and the only thing you can now focus on is how I'm going to execute these next two dives? Yeah, well, so in the third round, that's actually when my head bones died. And yeah, because I, I, and I, I still kick myself for this, but I'm like the total Girl Scout. I'm always overly prepared and I pack way too much stuff. But of course, on that day, I had no extra batteries. So I was just like this, ah, you know, moment. But it gave me this opportunity to remind myself, like I, the dive that I was, I, I had ahead of me was when I had hit for tens at like the trials and the, and the nationals. I knew I didn't have my headphones on when I'm on the 10 meter diving. Like I, I totally, it forced me into this place to give myself this pep talk where I, I became more confident than I think I would have just calming down and listening to my music. And so I hit that third round dive really big. And the top four girls, since I was seated fifth, the top four girls would go after me. Well, since I didn't have my headphones on, I was hearing the scores and I kept hearing low scores and I got really confused because I thought the round had started over because the girls after me were always getting nines. So I just assumed like, oh, was I in the hot tub too long? Like maybe the 12th place person went. So I was like listening for the next person. And then I realized it was still in those top four girls and they all ended up missing a dive like big time, like missing for like fives. And I couldn't see the scoreboard. But I knew because I had been about 30 points behind that I knew I must have caught up. Like I was probably at least within strike. I had to be within striking distance. And I had these two dives left. And the fourth round dive, it was one I had really struggled with because it was the same action that I broke my foot on. So it was scary because you have to throw at the platform. And since my legs are straight for that dive, like you come really close. And so I was always afraid I was going to hit the platform again. And it was painful because you have to stand on the ball of your foot and push with all your body weight on that area. And I still had that bone. I mean, it was, I had the cast on and it was like, you know, quote healed, but I still had the bone protruding underneath my foot. So it still hurt a lot. So this, I had struggled with this dive since coming back. And I remember, and I didn't have my headphones on to like calm me down. So I remember going to my coach thinking, okay, he always knows what to say. Like he'll, he'll calm me down. It'll be fine. Like just go talk to Kenny. And I go to talk to him and he just looks at me in the eyes and he says, do this for Hillary. And he walked off. And 
I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, we're in the most important moment of my life. And he's trying to make me cry. Like Hillary <laughs> Griffith was a teammate of ours. And she had passed away in a car accident three years before. And it kind of devastated our team. So I'm, I'm walking up the ladder and he has walked off. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm doing really well. I'm in the middle of the Olympics. I'm on the hardest, the dive I'm struggling with. And he just tells me to do it for Hillary. And he leaves. And like, I just kind of didn't know what to do for a minute. And I think I kind of aimlessly wandered to the platform, but I trusted my coach. And so I was like, he's pushing my buttons for some reason. I have to go there. And so I let myself think about Hillary in those moments, which would not have been part of my plan because I knew I was going to cry. <laughs> and I started thinking about her and I started thinking about some of the talks we'd had. And as I'm wandering up to the platform, I remember this one particular time we went to dinner and I remember asking her because she had been a really good gymnast before she started diving. She had, was actually the first alternate on the 1992 Olympic gymnastics team. And we think she was largely an alternate because she had broken a growth plate in her shoulder and they kind of kept her off the team because she was injured. And I remember asking her, she started diving the next year, the same time I did. Hey, like, do you think you would go to trials? Do you think you would try to make the Olympics and diving? Because I never met anybody else who had been so close to, to come, going to the Olympics. And she goes, you know, I don't know if I could come so close and not make it again. Like, I'm not sure if I, I want to go that route. She goes, but if anybody on our team is going to do it, it's going to be you. And that, for some reason, that totally stuck with me as I was walking up that platform. And I started thinking about those little divers who were cheering me on when I was pretending to dive on the 10 meter. And I realized that there were so many people that probably would never have the opportunity that I was in at that moment. And I realized that I was kind of their opportunity, that they were in this with me. Like That's why they were so supportive. That's why they were there with me the whole time. Because I was kind of all of our shot. You know what I mean? And Maybe that can be a lot of pressure to some people, but for me, it felt like it was a great power. And, and there was a quote that I love. It says, the task ahead of you is never greater than the power behind you. And that's what I really felt like walking into that dive. And I remember walking to the end and putting my arms over my head, getting ready to go. And I felt like I was six feet tall and I was not scared of the pain. I was not scared of hitting a platform. In fact, I was like, you know what? You got to be all in. You got to be willing to do this right now because it's not about you. This is so much bigger than you. And I threw at that platform with everything I had. And it was the best one I had done since before breaking my foot. And that's ultimately, I think, what kept me in the lead. And, and it ended up helping me win the gold medal. And it was just... I absolutely love it because it wasn't about me in that moment. And it was because it was about something so much bigger. So you do realize now that you are the best in the world. Yeah. I still had one more dive. after. One more after that, but you nailed that one too. Yeah. And that just meant more to me than anything else, because going into that last dive, again, I didn't know I was in the lead, but I knew I was within striking distance and I knew my last dive would be good. It was just kind of a matter of how good, but I remember standing up on the platform thinking you are living out your dream. You are in the middle of the Olympics. You are in the hunt for a gold medal. And this is it. Whether you get first or fifth after this dive doesn't matter. You are living out that dream. The fit, that thing that you've been wanting to do since you were eight years old, you're in the middle of it right now. And I had like this panoramic picture in my mind of what the arena looked like, where my coach was sitting, where my teammates were, where my family was. And that to me is one of my favorite moments because it didn't even matter if I ended up on the top of the podium at that point. I realized that I was in my dream and I was doing everything that I had worked hard for. And we had overcome at that point. Like it was all worth it. And there's a freedom to that. Oh, totally. Totally. What's it like? I've got to ask when you're on the metal platform and the flag goes up and the anthem plays, what's that moment? It's surreal. And it happens so fast. You know, I, I always wonder, would I be one of those people who's seeing or do I just stand there? What do I do? Well, 
I was so busy. All the, all the crowd had tried to come over to the other side of the pool where the, where the awards were that I was so busy trying to find my parents. I didn't even realize they had started the anthem. So I didn't know where in the song we were. So I just stood there with my hand over my heart and just tried to soak it all in. And as quickly as it started, it was over. And it's kind of this weird thing that you worked your whole life for this one moment and it's over like that. And you realize that as great as that moment was, it wasn't about the moment on the podium. It was about everything that got you there and who you become along the way. Yeah, it's the journey. It's the culmination of the journey where you look back and you get to say, I'm here because of every single day that I put the work in to get here. Exactly. And then you rededicate yourself after this to go to two more games in 2004 and again in 2008, each incredible feats in their own rights, especially after winning in 2000. And then in 2008, you decide to retire. You go into some broadcasting in 2016, which I'm very jealous of. In 2016, you are a broadcast analyst for the Rio games. And there's something that you notice now from the perspective of the booth, something about the athletes, the level of competition that makes you believe you can still compete. But I mean, we have to caveat this discussion because now you've been out for eight years. You're now at this point, the first female diver to win all three of diving's major titles, Olympic gold in 2000, World Cup 2004, world championship in 2005. So it's not like there was not this tremendous success after the gold medal. You've overcome a devastating injury that would have crippled most other people for the rest of their life, let alone going on to what you did. But broadcasting is also a very good gig. I mean, we spoke in episode three with Jerry Remy, who played for the second, oh, second baseman for the Boston Red Sox for a long time. And he's been now in the booth for 34 years and he loves it. It's you get you still get to participate, but it's a lot easier lifestyle. And then in March of 2017, on the day you're inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame, you announce you're coming back and you phrase it with the term dream chaser. So what is the dream that you're now chasing? Uh, well, it was really funny. I did not plan that out, by the way. We decided to announce <laughs> it on the same day. Yeah, the International Swimming Hall of Fame just happened to announce the same day. It was totally unplanned and really funny to me. <laughs> but yeah, I think just to remind people that it's about the pursuit. It's not always about achieving the dream. I mean, I went to the Olympics three times. I won one gold medal. It didn't make the other two times failures. It doesn't mean I regret doing that. Like I learned so much and I actually became, I think, a better athlete along the way. So it, it's about the pursuit. It's about the hunt. It's about who you become. And I think that's what I really mean by dream chaser. Like if you have these dreams, chase them because it's, you're going to become a better person along the way, whether you even achieve them or not, you're going to become so much further than if you don't even try. And it, you know, it's funny because in 2012, I actually went to the London Olympics with NBC too. I was, I was interviewing like the moms of the athletes, which was kind of a fun angle because I was a new mom at the time, but it was watching that Olympic games. I got to sit in the stands for the women's platform final. And that's what kind of put the bug back in my head because the level from 2008 to 2012 kind of tanked, not to insult the girls who are diving. I mean, they still earn their place, they earn their medal, but what it was and the level and the depth of competition was not the same. And it kind of stuck in the back of my head, but I had a little girl, we were adopting a little girl, like we were just kind of in this phase of, of having all of our kids. And so it just kind of sat back there, like maybe one day I'll get back in and try. In 2016, 
I was, like you said, on, on deck in Rio watching again, and it was better quality, I thought, than 2012, but it still, it wasn't where it had been when I was training. And so I still kind of thought about it. And I had kind of started playing in the pool a little bit that year. My coach had invited me when all my kids were in preschool one day a week for like an hour, <laughs> I would go to the pool and just do some basic stuff. And as soon as I hit the water, it kind of felt like home. And I just played an hour a week for a few months and things kind of started to come back. And I remember asking him at one point, would I be crazy to try this again? And he said, springboard or platform? I said, platform. He said, (laughs) I mean, immediately said no. And I was like, okay, well, I I wouldn't be insane. That's good to know. But I didn't say anything else because he still had to go through the Olympics that summer and everything, but it it was still in the back of my head. And my husband and I decided that fall, like, okay, if you think you want to try this, like just take the fall, go in full time and just see if you can still do it. I mean, at least find out. And then, you know, after a couple of months, if you realize like, I don't have what it takes, or I don't want to be doing this anymore, then then you're done. At least you'll know. But by that January, I had my fullest off 10 meter again and was wanting to compete. So it kind of, it kind of just happened, but that's, what's made it fun and has not been an easy journey. It's definitely been a really difficult journey, but I never thought I would get to do it again. And when you love what you do, just getting to do it again is so fulfilling because most divers retire after college. You know, they're in their early 20s. A few of us may go through. I mean, I was really old diving tower at 30 years old in 2008. I was like double the age of a lot of my competitors. So you don't see a lot of people that old on the platform. So just to get to do it again has been such a gift to me. And I know my time will be limited doing it. So I'm just trying to soak up, <laughs> you know, every last bit of it because loving what you do is really, really important. And so you mentioned that the comeback road hasn't been easy. I mean, that's is the reality. I've been out, out for a bit. And so you come back 2017, you announce you start training again, 2018, you begin to have trouble with your arm. And you said that you were strong, you were fit, but your arm was collapsing with your entries. So what was going on here? Yeah. So kind of, there was a lot going on too. Like I had come back, I competed in 2017. I got like second at nationals and then you know, I was doing really well. I was invited to some synchro camps and things. And then we had some trouble with our adoption in Ethiopia with our, our fourth child and declined going to some international meets I had been invited to because we were having to go to Ethiopia to try to bring our daughter home and tend to fight some corruption issues going on there. And so I, I kind of really didn't get to train much that spring. We finally brought her home and it took a few months to adjust. And so it was really the summer of, of 2018 that I was getting back into it. And by that fall, like you said, my arm was just collapsing on every entry. And I was like, I don't understand. I'm in great shape. This shouldn't be happening. I've always had kind of tricep problems. That's a pretty typical platform diver issue. But usually it's like toward the end of a workout or you're getting fatigued. This was happening on like entry one, you know, and it was happening on everything. I was smashing my hand on my head and it was just like, there's something not right here. And so my chiropractor said, I think we need to MRI your neck. And of course we get that done. And then I get sent to two surgeons. And they're both like, you have to have this done. And and I was really nervous that I was going to have to have a choice of have the surgery in order to keep diving or don't have the surgery and retire. And I didn't want to have to make that decision because I didn't think I could. And fortunately or not fortunately, the surgeon said, "You, you have to have this done just to be a mom. Because if you trip down the stairs, if you have a small car accident, like that could lead you a quadriplegic. Like that's how bad my, my vertebrae were. My discs had just like disintegrated. So it was just really a dangerous situation. So I had to have the surgery really quickly. And I mean, it was, it was a gift in some ways knowing that, okay, I'm going to be healthy. I will be able to be a great functional mom, but this also might give me the opportunity to dive again. But I don't know anybody who's ever come back to platform after having a surgery like this. I've met two girls actually on our team who've had it, one on her back, one of her neck that did springboard after. 
but never anyone to do platforms. So it was kind of this very unknown territory, which was a little scary. But I had a great surgeon who had lots of long conversations with us and had done the same surgery on like full contact football players and bull riders and skydivers. And so we were like, okay, (laughs) these are some full contact sports that these people have been safe going back into. I think maybe I could do this. But I was like, I can't afford to do the surgery again, you know, not just monetarily, but like physically and being a mom. So I needed to make sure I was really smart in my recovery. And I took an entire year to basically get back up on the 10 meter. And it was really stiff and it was really sore for a long time. But it was just those diligent, like we talked about at the beginning, those that consistent step-by-step, day-after-day, like not backing down and just continuing to slowly push that envelope. They got me back up there. And going into 2020, I was just starting to compete again. I mean, really just got my dives off. And so I had done two meets in 2020 before the whole pandemic lockdown. So it's kind of this crazy... (laughs) Yeah. So the last five years have been really crazy. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Well, let's talk about this re-entry after the surgery. And so the surgery is an anterior cervical disectomy infusion. I mean, this is a major surgery. There's a metal plate that now inserted into your neck. And as you said, nobody's done this. I mean, this is, you know, you now have to be the pioneer on this and kind of figure out, can it be done? And so I think about trust and trust in elite performance, I think is so important to developing and maintaining that confidence. And that's trust in yourself and your physical conditioning in your mental and emotional state, trust in your equipment, that it's all going to work because I believe that trust in those things, it defeats fear. Fear you call an emotion. And I mentioned before we spoke that you have, and we'll talk more about it in a bit, but a phenomenal podcast. And there's an episode where you talk about fear. And I want to share some of those lessons here because I think about a lot of athletes who have experienced it. I think about Lindsay Vaughn when she talks about having trust in her skis and her equipment. And when there's a loss of confidence in that, in her equipment, and even the loss of confidence that she had in her knee after a devastating fall in competition. I think about NASCAR drivers who lose confidence in the car as, as the tires wear and the track heats up. And then all those mental naysayers start coming in. They're creeping into your mind, these little kind of pinpricks of like, oh, well, maybe it's not going to work. Maybe it's not going to happen. And the fear and the emotions around the fear can easily take over. And so if you would define fear and how you perceive fear, and then maybe explain the difference between what you call a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear. Yeah. (laughs) Gosh, where do we begin? So many good questions. (laughs) I threw a lot at you, but I tend to do that. (laughs) The hard thing about fear, especially when it's like a big fear, is it can be very all-consuming and overwhelming. And it feels very, very, very real. But in reality, it's our perception of something. It's not necessarily an actual thing. I mean, if you've got like a wolf staring you down, that's a different thing. I mean, you might be scared of the wolf, but like there's an actual thing there. But a lot of times we're scared of the unknown. We're scared of what might happen. Like I I talk a lot about like the first time I jumped off the 10 meter is a lot like how we face life. Like it's really scary to jump because you don't know how you're going to land. You don't know if you're going to get hurt. You don't know where you're going to end up at the end. Like it's scary sometimes to take that first leap or that leap of faith in your life to kind of trust those things. It can be really scary because it's this unknown thing. And so we really have to remember that fear, kind of like we were talking about the opinions of others, fear is a lot of times a liar. Like it's just our way of telling us. And and a lot of times it's a safety mechanism, but when it's this all consuming fear, it tends to be us trying to give ourselves an excuse not to move forward. There's a healthy fear of like, 
I need to be a little bit scared of the platform to make sure I do the right action so that I don't hit it on the way down. Like that's a healthy fear. Otherwise you have complacency. If you don't have a little bit of fear, then you have complacency right. in these things. It's almost like a respect kind of fear. You know, like I've got a good respect for the platform in the water. Like I know it's going to hurt if I hit it wrong, but it's a healthy respect and fear that forces me to do the right actions. But if I've got a fear where I'm standing on the 10 meter for 10 minutes and I can't go, that has nothing to do really with the platform or the water, or how I could hit or what's going to happen. It's what I'm afraid is going to happen. It's like the fear itself is becoming the big issue. And so I think we have to remember that those kind of fears, they're an emotion. It's the way we're thinking about it. And so replacing that, like instead of thinking about those awful things, we need to change the way we're processing that. Like, how can I get past this? Or what is the one or two things I can focus on to get better? So if I'm scared, I'm going to hit the platform. You better believe that the one or two things I'm going to focus on is not, I'm going to hit the platform. I'm going to tell myself, throw your arms a certain way, push with your feet a certain way so that you don't hit the platform. You know, I'm going to reframe it in a more positive like statement in my mind of how to fix this, how to get through this instead of just wholly focusing on this thing that I'm afraid of, because that's what paralyzes you. You just get stuck in this might happen, this might happen, this might happen, instead of what am I going to do to make that not happen? And that's a really hard, it's easy thing to say. It's an easy thing to understand. It's a really, really hard thing to do. And fear is huge in my sport. Because obviously, if you're standing on a three-story building and you're throwing yourself at the platform, you know a lot of things can go wrong. So fear is really big in my sport. So I've dealt with that a lot. And I think understanding the difference between, like I said, that healthy, respectful fear and the fear that paralyzes you that doesn't need to. Like that has gotten out of control. And people try to like push that away. They're like, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just not going to think about it. But when you're doing that, you're interacting with it because you're trying not to think about it. So it's actually in the back of your mind. Whereas if you just think about it and you face it and you realize, okay, this is what I'm scared of. This is what could happen. How do I deal with this and move forward? It's you've got to face your fear. It's like popping a balloon. If you're just touching the balloon, it's just going to stay there. But if you look at it and you stick a pin in it, (laughs) it's going to pop. So we have to face these fears. And that's, it's not comfortable. It's not easy. And it may take time and people don't want to do that. But that's how you move past fear, at least in my opinion. And moving past that fear then helps you to gain that confidence. And there's a quote by your coach, because I think this is really important. It says a lot about you. And he cites confidence as one of the biggest, your biggest differentiators from your competition. And he says, the thing that I can't teach and one that no one can teach is that she knows she can do it. And if her body is right, then the rest of the field is in big trouble. I think that's really impactful because there's this it factor. And I don't know, can you define the it? Like, how do you know? Like, how do you know when you've moved past that fear in the moment and you just think to yourself, I've got this? I mean, it's not that simple, maybe, but <laughs> it's like you can move past fear and it can come back. You know what I mean? So sometimes it's like there's that constant drumbeat of you have to continually be recognizing it and dealing with it and facing it. And once you do that though, once you do it the first time, the first time is the hardest time. But once you do that and you realize that you can, in fact, move past the fear, it gets easier the next time. And you have to, it's like anything, it continually takes practice. And the more you practice it and the more you do it, the easier it gets, the more natural it becomes to do it and the less it affects you in a negative way. And I think as far as like staying in the moment, I think is really the biggest thing because If you're going to meet like diving is a lot like golf. My coach loves to compare the two. And I think it's a brilliant comparison because you have this like second action. Then you have all this time to wait in between and think about what just happened and what's coming. (laughs) But I think to wholly stay in the moment is really 
the biggest key. I have won huge meets after missing a dive really, really poorly, but I didn't let that affect me. I didn't be like, I wasn't like, oh, woe is me. I can't do this. Why should I just give up now? Or I can't win. Like, I just was like, well, okay, I can't change it. Like it just happened. That's not the way I wanted it to go, but I can't do anything about it. I have another dive I got to focus on, you know, and not trying to make up for that dive on the next one, but just letting it go, like just full on letting it go. I'll worry about this after the meet. I've got another dive in front of me that I have to focus on the right actions. What do I need to do? And so being able to, and not worrying about the outcome, like it's really hard to stay in the moment and you have to practice that in practice. Like you can't just show up at a meet and expect to do it. Like I get people all the time. I've got a meet tomorrow. What do I do? And I'm like, well, three months ago, you should have started practicing this, you know? So it takes practice to learn how to get into that mindset and understand how to let something go, how to stay in the moment, how to not worry about what's coming because it's way easier said than done. And even when you know how to do it, it can still be hard to do it. You know, it takes a lot of mental strength to be able to do it. And kind of going back to what happened in 2000, you know, I think really breaking my foot back then was such a gift because it gave me that opportunity to focus on visualization, to go through so many competition scenarios in my mind with so many different athletes. And I was so prepared by the time I got into the Olympics that I think if I hadn't broken my foot, I probably would have made that Olympic team. I was one of our better divers. But I can guarantee you, I would not have stood on the top of the podium without breaking my foot. Because like what we talked about, what I had to go through to get there, I think was necessary. Like it prepared me for those moments. It made me stronger mentally and spiritually and emotionally to be able to deal with those things in the moment and stay in the moment and be confident. Whereas if I had all that accidental practice where I was doing mental workouts basically for eight hours a day, every day for 10 weeks, I don't think I would have had that same ability going into the Olympics. Well, it's the thought process that adversity makes you stronger. Going through something comes with being on earth longer. I had a boss that used to, he used to say that, you know, and so you have these sets of experiences where you have to find solutions and you build knowledge, you build confidence, and it builds your entire persona that allows you to understand that and then channel it for what comes next. And so that's actually something that this last year has done to, you know, everybody, the world, it postponed the Olympics. And so last year, February, March comes around, the world started shutting down. Training at this level, as you've talked about, I mean, this, a lot of this is a science. There's definitely an art to it, but there's also a science aspect behind it. It's all, and a lot of it's based on these timelines for when these performances are and the training plans, there's benchmarks, they're all backward planned from this point of competition, there's tapering the qualifications that you talked about. And so your mental, physical, and emotional conditioning is really all kind of geared towards this specific moment in time. And then the games are canceled, which you know is somewhat unexpected at, at that point last year. But then also, I know, I remember that that decision was dragged on for a while. Now, are we going to cancel it? Are we not going to cancel it? Is it on and is it off? And so as you're sitting there trying to prepare, there's this sense of the unknown and I can imagine that that delay was crushing for so many athletes who have waited their, you know, not only four years, their entire lives. And, you know, people like, like yourself who now, you know, you've jumped back into this. This is the moment. But you actually called this the gift of another year. And so why was this a gift? Yeah, I never thought being like a 42-year-old mom of four, I'd be like, sweet, I got another year. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But that definitely was my initial reaction because I had just gotten back on platform a couple months before and I didn't feel ready. I felt like I, I needed more time to get confident and I just have more training under my belt. And so I kind of like, you know, got a big sigh of relief in that thinking, okay, I've got this whole year. I can be on 10 meter. I can really prepare myself. Well, we haven't had access to a 10 meter. 
because of all of the lockdown stuff, we haven't been able to go into facilities. And, you know, I grew up training in a pool that had a 10 meter platform, but that was torn down after the 2008 Olympic games. So we have to travel to different college pools or rec pools around the state to get platform time in. And so everything was shut down. So we didn't have that access. Come like October, we were actually allowed into a local pool that had a five meter. So I compete off the 10 meter, but the five meter, at least that's where I can do like what we call lead up. So like if you do a two and a, or a three and a half somersault off the 10 meter, you do like a two and a half off the five meter. And that was actually turned out to be really beneficial for me because a lot of times the five meter lead ups can be more challenging than they are in 10 meter. You have a little bit more time on the 10 meter to do it. And I haven't, I don't feel like I've really had that opportunity since I've come back in 2016, 2017, because every time I went to a platform, we were racing through the five meter to try to get up to the 10 meter. And so I was kind of forced into this extended time to do all of these buildups and to get really good at the actions and to get comfortable with them. And it's kind of been a gift because now just as of March, we got back on the 10 meter and my dives came back very quickly. They felt easier. I feel like I'm getting confident faster. So it's, again, it's kind of the challenge in front of you sometimes becomes the blessing that you needed. And I feel like every time, like you were talking about how adversity helps us, I I think these challenges that we face, they really are what equip us for what's coming ahead. And so I'm really grateful that I had so much time to be on that five meter to prepare me for this 10 meter in the small amount of time I have before we have our Olympic trials now. So I'll only have had a couple of months up there before our trials. But I, I mean, even as of right now, I feel pretty good for where we are. So I actually feel better than what I did in 2020 when the lockdown happened. So it's been crazy. It's never what you expect. You always think, oh, okay, well, now that this happens, I have this plan. And yeah, those plans never, never quite work out. But I have, and, and I'm a planner too, like being an Olympic athlete, like I plan everything out, every detail. And what I have learned this last year is that I can just tear my plans up and throw them out the window because I got to be able to roll with it. Um, and I'm not good at that. So this has definitely been outside my comfort zone. Our schedule changes literally every single week based on what pool we can get into, what time things change, events happen. So it's been, it has just been a little maddening at times, but I think it's just been really good because I've gotten flexible and now I have to get comfortable in a bunch of different pools all the time. I'm never in the same environment. So I think it's actually really helping me in a lot of ways, you know, stuff you don't want to do, but that actually builds you into a better person or a better athlete in the long run. So we actually talk about that a lot. We call it controlling the uncontrollables. And so, yeah, like in the army, we used to say, you you can't control the weather. You're not going to control the food. You're not going to control the conditions, the partner force in business. We talk about, you have no control over the market, the competition, the outside stressors on your teams and the individuals in your organization. And so COVID really has created that sense of, you have to accept that there are certain things that you can't control. So as an athlete, how do you actually think about the fact that you are impacted tremendously by this, but not let it get into your head and almost not use it as an excuse. So we spoke earlier about, can you fill your head with all these reasons why you couldn't do something? Well, this would easily be one of those things where you could say, well, I didn't get to do that. But actually, I really like how you talked about the five meter platform because it brings us back to those fundamentals. So it created the opportunity where you weren't focused on the 10 meter, which is the advanced part of your craft, you had to come back and say, okay, now I have to focus on the fundamentals because if I can get the fundamentals right and I can execute those to perfection, it's going to make me better at the advanced level. But how do you also keep that thought process away that, oh, well, COVID didn't let me do this? There's so many points here. And the Olympics is something, and you don't know it until you get there, but the Olympics is always full of these uncontrollables. Like 
just crazy things happen at the Olympics. Like you just have to go in knowing that something crazy is going to happen and you're going to have to be able to roll with it. And so I've definitely had to deal with that over the years. And I know that's something to expect. And and a lot of people, especially their first time, don't realize that like something crazy is going to happen. You just got to be ready for it. I love the going back to basics that you were pointing out because I, and, and the lived experience, like I've had a number of years now. and, And like you said, 28 years in the sport, which is crazy to me, but I've had a lot of experiences. And this the second part of my career here in the last few years, it's been very reassuring for me to look back at the things I've been through and been like, okay, this is much like when this happened and you were fine, you know? And, and so there was a time in 2007, world championships were at a weird time of year. They were like back in March. And so we didn't have nationals until like August. So I had this weird point of time where we weren't, uh, we didn't have a lot of competitions. So my coach brought me way back down and we just did basics for like a few months and I wasn't allowed to go up to 10 meter. And it was really, it was kind of nice. It was actually like, oh, okay, this is easy, fun, whatever. I don't have to worry about it yet. But we only got back up on 10 meter like a week before the nationals. And it was actually the first time I'd had this goal of breaking 400 with five dives for as long as I could remember. And that had always been a goal of mine and I'd come close, but I'd never quite done it. Well, I'd only been on, on 10 meter for a week before this nationals. And I was diving amazing because all those basics were in my brain. I hadn't been up there long enough to like get back to the stuff that I was doing that was wrong. And I remember in the prelims, I went 397. I was three points from this goal score. And I was like, wait, wow, like this could really happen. Like I'm maybe, maybe there's something good here. And, and I, I just stayed calm and I, I kind of just let it roll. And I really enjoyed that meet. I ended up going like 422 or something in the finals at that meet. And like, I look back on that now and I'm like, it was because I did basics for so long. Like, it's not a bad thing to do basics for so long and to not be up top. As long as you're confident with those actions and you take them with you to the 10 meter, like it'll be fine. And so that's been really encouraging the last couple of years as I've been up and down a lot. And especially this fall as I was like, I don't know when we'll get back on the 10 meter knowing that, okay, this has been very beneficial for me before. And I've seen that all of these challenges have been equipping me for something. So I know that what we're doing right now is going to help me. So I think it's really drawing on that experience too, kind of helps you roll with these weird punches. Like it might not be the exact same situation, but man, I've been through some similar things. You know, when I had my neck surgery, I knew I was going to be out of commission for like three months. I mean, I was in a neck brace for six or seven weeks and I couldn't run or jump for like 12 weeks. So I knew I was going to be down for a while. And that, well, I was like, well, what do I do? You know, I said, you know what? I'm going to think about all of the things that I have learned over my career and I'm going to put it all together and I'm going to work on that. And so I had a lot of time to go through video study and visualization and to think about fear and to walk through all these things again. And so since then, I've been, I've been drawing on these a lot again. And so these things I'm having to roll with are going to equip me in the long run if I let them. If I don't let them rule me with fear, but if I actually accept them and I roll with it. I'm going to immediately have my daughter listen to this last few minutes because she's playing lacrosse. She's in sixth grade now. So this is her first year of kind of organized lacrosse. And she wants to score goals, her whole thing. I just want to shoot goals. I want to shoot goals. And I'm explaining to her, you can't shoot goals if you can't catch the ball. <laughs> this is just the way it works. If you cannot catch the ball, you will not score a goal. And so we practice every day for 10 or 15 minutes before we do anything else. It's just catch and throw, catch and throw, because those are the basic fundamentals. So thank you, because I have to have her listen to this, like, like literally today. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> And I will note, I do want to note that you do have four amazing children. And I think that you have documented very well through Instagram and social media, an amazing balance that, that I see between your ability to 
cope with COVID, continue your training, continue your preparation, and then also balance the family life. And I think that that's truly inspirational for all of us to see. No, oh, thanks. I think balance is a bit of a unicorn, but you know, you try your best and you try to spin all the plates. And sometimes you drop one and you got to pick it up and put it back on there. But I think one of the best things COVID taught me was that I need to have my kids be part of what I'm doing. It was really frustrating when I was having to like flip at home and do all my workouts via Zoom at home. And my kids were all up in my business. I was getting really frustrated because <laughs> I want to control my workout space. I said, so one thing in my life I felt like I had control over and that was my me time. So bringing that home was a little disconcerting to me, but then I, I just had to take a minute and be like, okay, the Olympics are not tomorrow. It's okay if my kids are part of this. Like maybe this will actually be fun. And when I kind of let my guard down and I let them in, it was great. And I have, I have like two kids that do plyos with me every day. <laughs> they're always out there running sprints with me or they're doing the stopwatch for me. And it's actually been really good because it wasn't just, okay, mommy's going to do her thing at workout. Like, they saw what it took. They saw the sweat. They saw the tears. They saw the frustration. They saw how many times a day I was having to do this stuff and how hard I was working, all just hoping to get back in the pool. So it provided a lot of really good conversations for us because I have one kid who, if something is not perfect on the first try, he just wants to break everything. And he just gets very upset very quickly. And we have to talk about like failure is part of the process. Like It is not going to be right the first time. The best people you see doing this are beginners at some point. Like you have to start somewhere and that's okay. Like look at mommy. Mommy's been doing this for 28 years and I just smacked on my face in the pool, you know, but I got back up and I tried again and guess what? The next one was great. It's provided really good conversations that way. So I'm I'm actually glad for that opportunity to again step out of my comfort zone <laughs> and invite my kids into the process. And I can imagine that that then adds that power that you talked about behind you as you then go to perform and compete. So I want to talk about longevity here. And I know we were laughing earlier when we did the math and said 28 years, it's okay. That means you have so many more years left. And look at Tom Brady. I reference him all the time. You know, he's like timeless. I believe that longevity in athletics, this is not a given. I mean, this is earned and it's, it has to be earned every day through dedication, commitment, a drive for more. And this is true whether you're an Olympic athlete or whether you're in professional sports. But going to your fourth Olympic Games, it puts you in, in a class of folks that is truly exceptional. And I, I, you know, I look at Dara Torres, five games, 12 medals in swimming. Michael Phelps, six games, 28 medals. Stephen Redgrave, five games, five golds, British rower. These are truly inspirational stories, that not only in their accomplishments, but in, in the longevity to be able to, to just compete at that level for so long. And there's a lot of theories that promote longevity, you know, diet, routine, muscle and tendon pliability. And the physical aspect, though, I think is only one part because there's a mental aspect of this that prolonged competition where we talk a lot about revving high as, you know, type A personalized as elite performers, you kind of have a natural tendency to where you're emotionally, you rev high, where you're thinking about everything in this kind of hyper competitive state. And there's been a lot of advances in, in physical conditioning that have allowed our bodies to operate at those states for longer, over longer periods of time at a higher state. But the mind is still the powerhouse of our body. We talked about it with respect to fear, but the mind still captures everything else and it sets the tone for what our performance is going to be. And I think, in fact, it's been proven probably over and over again that the mind will quit well before the body will in a lot of different scenarios. But elite performers are able to separate themselves by how they're able to actually control their mind. And over time, these stresses and these pressures that you face at the elite competitive level, I think, can fatigue the mind. 
How have you been able to stay mentally focused and separate that mind and body concept, right? To be so competitive over a longer period. I I think it was a great benefit to have taken like nine years off. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I think being out of it and being forced to Because one of the hardest things too about an athlete, especially an elite athlete who has achieved at a really high level for a very long period of time is you don't know who you are out of your sporting arena. And that's a really hard thing to deal with. And some people don't quit because they don't want to deal with that. So that's a really scary thing. And so I had to deal with that. And when I retired in 2008, I wanted to become a mom and I wasn't able to become a mom. Like it took us a while, you know? And so I had to really deal with like, who am I if I'm not a diver? Who am I if I'm not? Who am I? Like what value do I have? And so I had to walk through some of those hard things. And I think being not an athlete and and forcing myself to be outside of that and then to be in a different environment, taking care of little kids all the time. And where being an elite athlete, you have to be very selfish a lot of the times and do all the things that benefit you because you're sacrificing a lot. But then when you're a mom, it's a whole different kind of sacrifice. Like it's because it's not about you. It's about everybody else but you, (laughs) you know? So then coming back and being a mom that's an athlete, it's like trying to marry those things is very different too, because I have to do what I need to do for training, but at the same time, my family is going to come first. And so like you were talking about balance, like I don't think there is a balance. Like you've got to kind of figure out how to be all in both ways at different times. I'm fortunate. I have a very amazing husband who helps us a lot with the kids. And that's really without him, this would not be happening at all. But I, I think this has all given me the ability to come back and have more of a passion. And it's not that in the last four or five years, I've had this amazing passion for the sport the whole time. Like it has been a roller coaster. And you know, in the middle of that, like I said, we, I basically stopped so that we could try to bring our daughter home from Ethiopia and we had to fight and go through Congress and all these different things to try to bring our child home. And then going through the surgery where I was basically out for like a year, it has not been an easy road and then the postponement. So all of these things, like, so my emotions have been up and down and all over the place. And my passion has had moments of waning and like, what am I doing? Should I keep going? Why do I want to do this? And, you know, I've had a lot of times where I'm like, you know, God, I'd be okay if you close the door and we're done with this. But he's made it very clear this is where I need to be. And he's made a way and and that fire is back and that fuel is back and 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 I'm excited and loving it again. But I don't think it's that it's sustaining and it's great all the time. I think we're normal and we're people. And like you said, if we've got heightened emotions, we're gonna experience all the emotions. And I am very much like that. I don't know if that is a normal thing, but I'm a very emotional person on in all the ways. But I've I've learned not to be scared of my emotions. I've learned how to use them and how to direct them and kind of just, yeah, how to roll with that (laughs) again, rolling with things. So I I think that's really been the benefit for me. And it's weird knowing that the end is kind of near, if that makes sense of my career. And I'm trying not to really look at that so much, but really just enjoy doing it right now. Just really enjoy this process because it's it's just been so much fun. And to just, no matter what happens, be able to take that with me when I'm done that I really enjoy being back here and whether I make the team, whether I win, whether I don't, like it's not about that. It's about trying to, again, meet my goals, which is not just a medal. It's not just a team. I have very specific goals that I want to reach. It's about reaching those and, and fulfilling that, you know, that thing inside that you want to do and just feeling good about that and being able to walk away. Like that would be a great success. Let's talk about those emotions for a second and the channeling of the emotions that you just mentioned. And I want to put it in the context of how do elite performers, leaders of organizations, whether it's in athletics or business, how do you channel the pressure of the moment? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by this concept of how elite performers and whatever they do, they can channel the energy of their mind and body when they know that everything rests on them in this, this one snapshot in time. And we've talked about it in previous episodes. We talked about it with Jerry Remy, where he talked about pitchers. 
closing pitchers on baseball teams where their confidence is actually gained from the fact that they look out into the bullpen and there's no one else there. And they know that this is it. This is me and I'm here to end this thing. And that actually gives them a sense of, of power and control. Emily Sandberg Gold, who is an international fashion model, talked about the moment when the world is watching you. And this is a representation of not really you, but of the fashion designers, the brands. And so there's this power and calm that comes because it's greater than just you. And then Dr. Claudius Conrad, he spoke about his work in pancreatic surgery and the fact that when you're doing these procedures, this is a zero failure game that you have to be perfect because the life of your patient rests in a millimeter of movement. And I think about diving and I, and I, you know, I watched it in the Olympics and I, I watched a bunch of your dives in preparation for this. And I see the walk up the stairs, you know, the step to the edge, the, the towel goes over the railing, right? You're 33 feet you know, into the sky. Sometimes now you, you know, you walk to the edge and now you're inverted, you know, in a handstand. And, you know, admittedly, I think about that and I'm like, okay, I, I do yoga a few days a week and they're like, do this crow pose. And I'm like, well, I can't hold the crow pose for like two seconds. And this diver's inverted here for like a good while you know, before they actually then launch themselves off this thing. And there's people, there's cameras, there's the results. And these are the moments that cause most people to have weak knees, you know, racing hearts, a shortness of breath. It's all mental at that moment though, because you wouldn't be there, right? Physically, if you wouldn't be in that moment, if you weren't as good or better than everybody else. And so now that difference comes down to the actual mental side of it. You referenced smiling and that that is a way that you've channeled this energy. And so can you talk about that moment and how you accept that you're in this moment of extreme pressure? It's on you, but now it's about performing. Yeah. I mean, I guess something I started doing right at the beginning, and I had people point that out a long time ago. I was just this natural reaction because I was so, I was just happy. Like I love doing this. And so when, and when people are cheering for me, like I smile, I think in recognition that they're in this with me a little bit and that I'm happy to perform for them kind of, I don't know. It's just something I really enjoy doing. And I guess I, I want to give them the recognition of cheering for me as well. And, the, and to just, it just comes out pretty naturally. But I think I also kind of make up my mind that I'm going to enjoy this, whatever the outcome, because really when you look back, like I remember a lot of details from meets, but I don't always remember every single dive. I don't remember what I missed or I don't remember what the score was, you know, but I remember the fun that I had. Like I remember different meets because of how it made me feel. And so if I go in knowing that I'm going to enjoy this competition, generally that puts me in a place where I'm going to do really well because I'm, I'm happy to be there and I want to do this. And it's not about the pressure, the expectations or all these other things. Just let that go. And it's just about me enjoying the moment. And again, staying in that moment and trying not to worry about what happened or what's going to happen, but just really living and learning how to be mindful and so fully present. And that's not an easy thing to do all the time. But when I can be in that place, just fully in that moment, that's when I feel the most complete, I think. You know what I mean? That's when I feel my best. And yeah, I just fully enjoy it too. And it's just, it's the best memories all around because you enjoy the moment and then you, you do well. <laughs> so I do all my worrying and my thinking back here on the platform. And by the time I get to the end, there's maybe one or two things I think of. And I just try to let it all go and let it happen. So we referenced earlier another initiative that you have, which is your podcast called the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I've listened to a bunch of episodes. I mean, truly amazing. I, I mean, really inspirational. 
the guests that you have are truly inspirational in their own rights. Can you talk more about, you know, how come you set off on that? And, you know, how are these conversations with other Olympic athletes who have gone through, you know, different sports? And so there's a little bit of a nuance to that, but by and large, there are a lot of the same challenges that you face, you know, mentally as you prepare for these games. So how's that experience been? And what are you learning from that? Well, it's been awesome. I'm glad you've listened to a few episodes. That's really cool. It kind of started, I mean, I started it last summer. I'd been thinking about it for a while. I hosted for another program for a while and I enjoyed it, but I was like, I kind of have my own ideas and I want to do my own things. And so I started since we had some time last in the last year, I decided to give it a whirl. And my whole reason, I call it the pursuit of gold because I wanted it to be for athletes. Not that it's just for athletes, but really with athletes in mind, because as a young athlete, like I didn't have very many resources. Even now as a three-time Olympian, have zero resources because I'm not like an official national team person or on certain program in our sports. So I don't have resources. So this is actually my way of finding the resources and giving them to other athletes. So I bring on all kinds of elite athletes because what you'll find with athletes from all different sports is that they go through different challenges, but there's so many similar lessons. And sometimes the way one person puts it just sticks with you and it just clicks with you better than maybe how somebody else might say it. And so I think learning all those lessons has been really, really cool. And some people just say something a certain way that really resonates with you and it sticks with you. I mean, that's how I've always learned is just talking to people, talking to people who've done it, who did it really well. And I, I bring on experts and coaches also, because again, I don't have a nutritionist. I don't have a sports psychologist. So I'm going to bring them on the show and I'm going to ask them all the questions. So not only am I learning all this stuff, but hopefully the athletes listening, parents listening, coaches, whoever can also learn these valuable resources as well. And it's it's been super encouraging to me because like I said, as I'm trying to, at least last year too, trying to refine the passion with the postponement and not having the access we wanted, I was looking for encouragement. I was looking for inspiration. I was looking for reasons to keep going. And I think talking to so many athletes who have had so many just amazing journeys has really helped me with that. And I mean, one of the people I talked to a couple of weeks ago, his name is Robert Paler. He was paralyzed from the neck down in a rugby game at their national championship game. And his attitude and his perspective on life, like he wouldn't go back and change it if he could because it has changed him and his purpose so greatly. And so hearing people like that, you know, and Apollo Ono, who talks about kind of how his, it's like the daily consistency and the things that he was willing to risk at his last, like going into his last Olympics, how he changed everything. And he was willing to risk it and gamble that to get that ultimate result that he wanted. Like learning those lessons from people and taking that with me, I think makes me not just stronger mentally, but emotionally and spiritually. And it also gives you, like you talked about the confidence, hearing other people going through these things and coming out the other end, you're like, I can do this too. If they can do this, I can do this too. And that's something that I get from the podcast. And I hope other people listening also get, because that's the whole point is I want to encourage and inspire people and give them the tools to actually make their dreams come true because dreams are worth chasing, whether you get them or not, but sometimes they do come true and it totally makes them worth chasing. Yeah. And those are great stories to learn from. Apollo Ono actually has a really cool story where he talks about, he didn't respect the level of work that was required to operate at that level. And so he has a great quote where he's like, I thought the off season was like, was the off season, meaning that like, I didn't actually have to do anything. And that actually surprisingly went on for like a long time. Like he'd been to like multiple competitions and competed at a very high level before he realized like, okay, wait, I'm getting like destroyed by these other folks, but they're actually like not better than me 
they're just actually putting the work in and maybe the off season isn't really the off season. Right. <laughs> I know that's uh, great. I love that his dad made him like go to a cabin and think about yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, he's like, Are you coming back? So a couple of months left of training before the games. How do you spend the next couple of months? Well, we have our trials. Our trials are at the beginning of June. And so that's really kind of the big thing for us because that's if you make the team or not, that's where all the big decisions are made. So that's what we're really gearing up for at this point. And from there, we'll start working at Tokyo. It was a little disheartening learning that my family, if I make Tokyo, won't be able to come because they've not allowed any spectators from abroad. So that was a blow. And I had one kid actually cry. So that was kind of a tough thing to tell them. But the fact that they can come to trials and they can be part of all of that is we're just really trying to play that up and make that really special for them. So they're definitely looking forward to that. And I mean, I'm looking forward to it too. It's it's in Indianapolis, which is a pool I had my 2008 Olympic trials in. So my name... And if, the really cool thing about India is if you make the Olympic team in the Indianapolis pool, you get your name up on the wall. And so my name's up there. So it's always kind of fun to go back there and be like, there I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you got to get it on there again. <laughs> yes, for sure. So as we close out, I always asked all my guests on the podcast about the three things that they do to be successful every day. And the reason why I ask that is because we are called the Jedberg podcast and the organization of the Jedbergs back in World War II as an organization of transformative leaders had to do three things every day to be successful to achieve their mission. And their mission changed every day. It was very nebulous in what they had to do outside of win the war. And they had to be able to shoot. They had to be able to move. They had to be able to communicate. They were the three foundational aspects. And if they did those things well, like we talked a lot about the foundational aspects and the basics, it didn't matter what changes came their way, they would find a way to actually solve them. And what are the three things that you do every day to be successful? I mean, honestly, I think the first thing is really I tell my kids I love them. I tell my family I love them like multiple times a day. I just, I have to, I, I want them to know that it's for me. It's for, there's just, I need that connection every day, you know, to be able to kiss them and hug them tell them that I love them. Cause again, they're like the power behind me and, and in front of me. And they're kind of my big reason why, you know, so that's I always start with that. Definitely. I got to make sure I'm, I'm moving every day, even, even on my off days, take a walk, be outside something. I just being active. It just, I, I don't know. It helps my body kind of stay in touch. I really don't like super off days. I feel really bad after that. So just, even if it's a little light, something I, I've got to move every day, even if I don't feel like it, I know as soon as I move, I will feel better. <laughs> and Probably the other thing is really just making sure I'm drinking enough water. I know that may seem pretty silly, but I carry around a giant blue water bottle with me all day long every day because I'm just, I won't drink it if it's not there. And so staying hydrated just makes my body feel good. And especially with the longevity, I need to make sure everything's working well and water is so vital to our body. So those are probably the top three. So I classify everybody as well. So there's two parts to every ending here, right? We, and we spoke a bit about the nine characteristics of special operations forces, elite performance as defined by special operations forces, right? And those are drive, resiliency, adaptability, humility, integrity, effective intelligence, team ability, curiosity, and emotional strength. And I look at those nine and, and I say, yes, Laura displays all of these at various times in different capacities, depending on the situation that she's faced now and over the course of her career. But if I had to break it down to one, which I've got to here to end it out, there's this, I say drive, there's this need for achievement, a growth mindset, be better today than you were yesterday, continuous self-improvement that you display that has set you apart from all of your competition. 
You've had tremendous success and more to come. And I'm so excited to learn from you, spend this time with you and watch you as you go on this year to compete again. And there's a quote that I do want to give that you've said before we close out. And it is about that dream catcher mentality. And it's for all the people who maybe think they're too old to do something they love to do. Don't let society or culture decide that for you. If you love something, do it. And I think that shows your drive. And I thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to watching you. I wish you the greatest success and I'll be cheering you on. Yeah, thank you so much. This was awesome. And I love those like nine tenets too. I think I'm going to actually put them up. I've got it printed up. I'm going to stick it on my mirror. So I look at those and remember them every morning. So thanks for allowing me to be a part of this. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.